Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's show, I'm speaking to Mike Haven. Mike is currently the Associate General Counsel and Head of Legal Operations at Intel, and it's a fascinating journey and discussion. He starts off with when he was in eighth grade, listening to his father argue a case before the Supreme Court of the US and getting grilled by Sandra Day O'Connor, right through to his current position at Intel, as well as being the president of Clock Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. It's a fascinating discussion. Mike is a great guest. What I really enjoyed about this discussion is actually his current priorities, both in his position as the president of Clock, as well as his priorities at Intel and what he's done there in the first 12 months or so about moving the needle, if you like, on the legal operations function. So anyway, it's a great discussion. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the show. Mike Haven, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to this. Now, the usual way I kick off, Mike, is I do a very high-level review of the career of the guests, and I might do that with you, and then we'll do a bit of a deeper dive. You started off as an attorney at a firm, uh, well, I don't know if that's, actually, I've just picked that up, Shepherd and Haven. I don't know if that's a related haven, but you start off for a few years there, moved to K&L Gates and you're a partner, and then you moved in-house, I think in 2013, to NetApp, Senior Corporate Counsel and a legal ops function there, some time at Gap, and then more recently, of course, at Intel, as well as your positioning clock. So that's very high level. Love to hear a little bit about the Mike Haven story, the journey, the what some of those early influencing factors might have been. So take us through that, Mike. So I grew up thinking that I might become a lawyer. Uh, My dad was a lawyer and very successful one in Sacramento, California. And uh, when I was in eighth grade, I went to Washington, D.C. with him to watch him argue a seminal case before the United States Supreme Court. No way. So you you did that uh, as an eight-year-old? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. So, okay. Well, probably... well, then your, your career was set. I can tell you at that point, <laughs> I can absolutely see you've got a single path. Go on, go on. That's well, fantastic. I, was, I wasn't totally sure because when I yep. watched Sandra Day O'Connor grill him at oh. the Supreme Court, I wasn't sure if that I really wanted to face the wrath of something like that. Yep. Yep. Uh, but it turned out that the case he argued became a seminal case and one that we all studied in the U.S. in civil procedure, Asahi versus Superior Court. So, so that was uh, a really cool thing. And uh, so I thought, you know, I might follow in his footsteps and I went to college. And after college, I moved up to Lake Tahoe and was a ski bum for a while. And then, you know, just thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And it dawned on me that my calling was to become a lawyer and go work with my dad and ultimately take over his firm and live happily ever after. Okay, but, so that, that's where the haven came from and Shepard haven the first firm okay yeah so uh i I did that and i I applied to one law school which is the law school in sacramento so i could work at his firm while i was in law school and i did that and ended up working with him for five glorious years which was 
really a special thing to be able to spend so yeah. much time working with your father. And, you know, given that he trusted me and, and uh, you know, was willing to give me the sink or swim approach to, to learning how to practice law, I was thrown into a lot of very complex things very early in my career. So I was taking complex depositions and even trying cases. Uh, I even tried a couple of cases as a first chair before I left his firm. And, and then my wife was recruited by Stanford University for this amazing job that she couldn't pass up. So I dropped everything and went with her to the Bay Area. And, you know, she took this job at Stanford and I didn't have a job, but I uh, was fortunate to find quickly find the the job at KL Gates where they had just opened a Palo Alto office. So I was I kind of got in on the ground floor in their Palo Alto office with a partner who became a mentor of mine, John Michelson, and learned so much there over seven years and made partner and and all that good stuff. And then then I met Connie Brenton and everything kind of changed again. Because okay. you never really you never really know where you're career is going to take you. And so I met her at a baseball game and um, you know, we talked a lot about legal operations and it fascinated me. It resonated with something that I really believed, which is that the legal profession needed to change. And so I you know, took a leap of faith and uh, went to work with her at NetApp and the rest is history. So, and just tell me about that particular crossroad. So, you're at a part. You've only known law from being in a law firm. You're at a partner at KNL Gates. You meet Connie. You talk about operations. So, where is the crossover, or what had you experienced before that that made you think, you know, what this might be something? There might be something in this. It's a great question. I always had an interest in business. So business. Uh, yep. when I was in college, I actually thought that I might go move to New York City and work on Wall Street. And I actually did go interview on Wall Street uh, while I was a senior in college and then uh, decided I wasn't quite ready for the real world at that time. But I always had that lingering interest in business in the back yep. of my mind and you know learned a lot about it over the years and i think legal operations is a really cool crossroad between business and law and yep. it, so it was sort of a, an interesting sweet spot for me now i, I did practice business law in at knl gates and in my career as an outside lawyer but there was something about rep being an outside counsel where you were just a little bit too attenuated from the advice that you provide and the implementation of that advice. So, you know, there was a little bit of that disconnect that lingered in my head as something that I would not like to have. I would rather be in-house with the business helping, uh, you know, implement the decisions that are made based on legal advice. And so, Given my interest in business and given my interest in being closer to the business, it was sort of a natural progression from outside law firm to in-house. So, so tell me about some some of the experiences of those early days at NetApp and your first kind of exposure to legal operations and those early learnings. Talk, talk a little bit about that. It was a fascinating time because, you know, we were doing 
new things that yep. weren't being done much in the industry at all. And a lot of it was trailblazing stuff. And I had Matt Fawcett and Connie Brenton blazing the trail. And I was just sort of, you know, learning from them yep. and yep. soaking it all in. And it was a fascinating time uh, because a lot of the things that we're doing now routinely and that are generally accepted were not so at the time. Yep. That was new stuff that uh, was really tough on a lot of the outside firms and other vendors and you know just generally across the industry, things that weren't quite, hadn't quite become routine just yet. So, so don't tell me you were tough on the outside firms. Well, oh you know, I, I don't think by today's standards it would yep. be considered tough. I think by the standards of those days, it, it, it was. was. And yeah. that just goes to show you how much we've, how far we've come over yeah. the years. Any particular examples or initi those early initiatives? It, was that, for example, you know, moving a, a, away from hourly billing or was it trying to understand who was doing the work and where it was better done, whether you were you know, taking some of the lower level work out into alternative legal service providers? What, what, what are some of those early examples? Well, one, Which one, are table stakes now? Yeah, one good example is how in-house teams and law firms share data. So yep. we were constantly asking for data to help us, you know, tighten up our operations. And it was really tough to, it was like pulling teeth to get data from the law firms back then. And I remember one example of that where we were, we actually had to start, we, we had to start using technology to force them to give us data. We tried to implement it with 20 our top 20 law firms, and all of them agreed to do it, except for one. And so we told that one that we weren't going to be able to work with them anymore because they weren't doing what we needed them to do to share the data we needed. Yep. And that was a big deal. But then they called back like 30 minutes later and oh, said, surprise, well, su surprise, surprise. Yeah. Right. They called back <laughs> 30 minutes later and said, how about we just go to fixed fees for everything? And wow. we were like, well, that sounds great. Yeah. Why don't we do that? And yeah. why don't, and in order to do that, we're going to need, you know, some, some data and, and to figure out what the right model yeah. is and, and right amount is. But it, it ended up bolstering the relationship in the end, even though there was a moment there that it got really dicey. So, yep. you know, that's just one example from my distant memory of uh, yep. a struggle and, and us like, trying to do things that routine, are routine now in terms of, you know, law firms are far more open now, at least yep. the ones we work with, to share data that helps us figure out what, what the right fee models are and, and how that should look. Yep. So, yeah, as you well know. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's, I always say that law firms are fantastic at, at servicing the needs of their clients. And if the clients are clear on what those needs are, whether it's in relation to fixed fee arrangements or data, then it's reasonably rare that law firms just say no. They're really good. Once they understand and they understand the importance Typically, certainly my experience is that law firms are very cooperative and are really good at actually being able to service the needs of their clients, whatever those needs are, whether it's around date or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And is that is that fair in your experience? Yeah, it, I mean, we're making a lot of progress. Yeah. Um, I, the, the firms that we're working with now, are, uh, it, it's night and day compared to 2012 or 2013 
right. That was uh, not not quite the pulling teeth that it was a few years no, ago. That's what you're saying. I think they get it, you know, yep. and or they're starting to. Some do, some don't. But the the ones that you know, I'm fortunate, have been fortunate to work with, are are really starting to get it. And they're doing yeoman's work in terms of all the different things that they're juggling with all their different clients. And, you know, part of what we need to do is make all of that easier for them too. So, you know, we, we have work to do as an industry to actually make it manageable for law firms to provide all of their clients with all the different things they need to, to run their businesses and do it in a more seamless way that doesn't take them away from the, the the good work that we really need them to be doing for us. So there's a lot a lot that we all need to improve on. And Mike, when you say as an industry we need to be doing more, is it does that kind of include if you like collective behavior so that that law firms aren't doing very many different things for very, very many different customers or clients and making it harder. So if there was a level of uniformity in the industry as to what what, what it was after, is that is that an example of doing more or better in the industry? I think so. Yeah, I think yep. standardization of certain things like, yep. uh, you know, temp, using templates that are generally acceptable across the industry as a, at yep. least as a starting point for engagement terms or agreements yep. and uh, or you know RFPs uh, yep. in your world and NDAs things that can be generally used across yep. multiple organizations i think we should try to make that happen as much as we can yep Okay, so, so you moved then from NetApp, you had four years at, at Gap. Tell us a little bit about that experience and perhaps some of the highlights or some of the things that stand out for you and kind of prepared you for where where you are today. Yeah, it was, you know, I was, I learned a lot uh, at NetApp and I was ready to fly and go run my own program and the gap opportunity came along which was phenomenal because they didn't really have a an organized legal operations function they did have an e-billing system but that was about it and then you know some of the work that has to get done you know in the legal operations world uh, was being done you know in various other places throughout the department it wasn't centralized and, and so I when I went there it was an opportunity to really sort of build a program from the ground up and yep. that was a, a really exciting opportunity for me and also just the opportunity to work with the gap legal team which is terrific amazing people julie gruber and paul adams and tom lima at the time were really wonderful people to work for and learn from so it was an exciting opportunity and i went there and got a lot of things off the ground for them over a, a couple of years and then in early 2019 Gap decided that they were going to spin off Old Navy as yep. its own publicly traded company. And I was asked to lead the functional separation of Old Navy for several of the company's organizations, including legal. And so that really took me off of my my roadmap uh, yep. to do what I was planning to do. And, and this yep. is a good lesson for anybody in terms of working in an organization and and yep. understanding that you have to first deal with the company's priorities, you yep. know, no matter what. And so that kind of took me away from the the technology, legal technology roadmap and all the things we were doing 
but it was a phenomenal opportunity to learn a lot about business aspects that I wasn't already familiar with. And yep. so we, I did that and worked really hard on that for about a year. And then they decided to cancel the spinoff and Old Navy was no longer spinning out. And, you know, the, I was just determined at that time that I would take a look at some other opportunities and then the Intel yep. and some others showed interest. And I was really happy to have the opportunity to go to an incredible company like Intel. So, And, and let's talk a little bit about that. So you, you, you took on, I think that was 2020 when you took on the role at Intel, Associate GC and Head of Legal Ops. I'd love to hear what was the Intel pitch to Mike? Hey, Mike, we need you to come in and do X. And then a little bit about what attracted you to the position. Well, Intel is one of the best companies in the world yep. and has been for a really long time. It's always been one that I've really respected. And they you know, made it clear to me that they are all in when it comes to building a world-class legal operations team. And you know, the opportunity to go to a company like that in a department of this size with so many amazing professionals working in it and have the responsibility to build a world-class team is, you know, it's a once in a lifetime yeah, once opportunity. In a lifetime. Yep. And, yep. you know, so just given the timing of that and, uh, you know, where things were at Gap and how I was uncertain about the future there, it was really perfect timing. And then uh, COVID hit and everything got messed up again. So... <laughs> Life has a funny habit of doing that, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, like, right. just gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, it really does. And so I, I've been at Intel now for over a year. And have um, you actually met anyone in person yet? At, in all seriousness, have you actually met any team members well, in, in uh, person? I've met a couple only because they live near me. Yep. And, okay. Uh, and we're essentially neighbors. One is his son goes to school and plays sports with my son. So, you know, I yep. bump into him from time to time. But as far as the people on my team, no, I have yep. not seen any of them in person, been working together for over a year and have never been in a room together. And yep. that uh, has been a, an incredible challenge. Incredible. But, yep. you know, I, I'm really proud of, of how we've done despite those headwinds. So, so tell me, how did you even start getting your arms around basically the role, the function, the team, and how you were going to identify what your priorities were in the first you know, six months, 12 months. How did you even, how did you start that? I yeah. spent very long days in back to back to back meetings. Yep. And so I started by speaking to everybody around the department that I could about yep. what they, their, what their challenges were, what what they saw as problems that needed to be solved. And I literally did that for months, meeting after meeting with yep. people, and then developed a priority roadmap, yep. a, a, a mission statement of sorts uh, that had our high level, three high level priorities that were common themes from yep. what I was hearing around the department and uh, created this roadmap and then ran it by the GC, he said it was perfect. And so he was all in on the priorities that I had laid out. 
and then I set out to execute them. And yep. the first thing we did was reorg the team to better align with the priorities and created you know, four verticals in the team that were uh, would directly support the priorities that I had outlined and then yep. did a roadshow where we, we took uh, the priorities out to the department and made sure everybody was clear on what we are doing and what our priorities are. And now we are over a year into it. And I look back and, and you know, we've hit everything on the head in terms of what we needed to accomplish in that first year, despite the fact that we've been bogged down by COVID restrictions. And so I'm proud of that. We still have a long way to go, a lot of sure. work to do, uh, but it, we've come a long way in a short time. And, and Mike, is there anything about those priorities that you can share, even at a high level? Because I'd, lo- I'd love to learn about that and then, you know, a little bit about it, if you can share, you know, the, the road to executing on those priorities. Yeah. So at a very high level, yeah. priorities, priority number one will resonate with you. It's about optimizing our spend yep. without compromising the quality. Um, our quality. And, yep. you know, so that's that's number one. Uh, number two was improving processes and technology. Now, it wasn't about going out and buying more technology. We had a lot of technology and which is not to say we didn't buy more as you well know we did but making there were a lot of fragmented point solutions that were not connected with workflows so we needed to more or less optimize the technology we were using and make sure that it was the right technology to be using for what we needed to be doing and we're not done with that by any stretch but uh, we've made a lot of progress there and then that that, that one's that one's a journey (laughs) that one's a a journey encompasses a lot of different things it, yeah. you know it encompasses uh, a new spend management platform it encompasses contract lifecycle management yep. and the evolution of that encompasses um, document management and all sorts of things and you know we're trying to get away from manual processes and automate them wherever we can and and try to eliminate technical debt, you know, yep. things that we have that we don't need and, and yep. things of that nature. So there's all of that. And then, but the big thing that I created uh, for the first time in the department is a team dedicated to business intelligence, dedicated yep. to data and analytics. That was the third priority was uh, delivering yep. meaningful business intelligence to our leaders and teams. And, you know, so we, I, I went out and hired a Stanford MBA onto our team who is directing our legal analytics and metrics program. And that uh, has been, it's only been in place for six months or seven months, something like that. But it's amazing what that team have accomplished already uh, in terms of delivering meaningful data and analytics to the teams to help them drive strategic decisions. I was going to ask you, Mike, 14 months or so into the role, I love the way you've laid out those priorities and they absolutely resonate. So clearly you're not busy enough. You don't have enough work because earlier this year, then you decide, you know what, on top of that, I've got plenty of time on my hands. I'm going to take on the role of being the president of clock. Take me through your thinking there and, and Mike and, and you know, basically why I'd love to understand you know, your thought process. There's no doubt you would have thought long and hard pros and cons. Love to learn a little bit about that. So, well, Clock is an organization that's near and dear to my heart. You've been a board member for a few years now, haven't you? I've 
been a board member since early 2019. 2019. Um, so a couple years uh, before yep. that, but I had been involved with Clock long before that. Even before Clock became Clock, I was hanging around with the founders and, yep. and learning everything I could from them. But you know, I I think it's a meaningful organization. It it is really sort of helped drive the explosion of legal operations yep. into what it is today. So it matters to me. And, you know, I did think long and hard when I was approached to potentially uh, replace Mary, who had ta- just recently taken a job at Ironclad and yep. uh, therefore couldn't be on the board anymore. Sadly, we, we all miss her tremendously. But when we were having those discussions and they raised my name as a potential successor, I was like, well, I don't know. I, I have to think a lot about that because there were some things that gave me pause. One, of course, was the fact that I'm all, I just I took a, I'd only, it was only a year into my new job at Intel and was extremely yep. busy and it will be extremely busy and, and made it very clear to everybody that Intel will always be priority number one. And I wanted to make sure that I had the time to give Clock what it, the the attention it deserves because it deserves a lot. And yep. you know, fortunately, in during Mary's term, we were we added an executive director and a staff, and uh, we have uh, we are a well-oiled machine in Clock yep. now, and it's become a more mature organization. So my role as president of the board is more or less that you know, helping the uh, leading the board in setting strategic direction and not getting into the weeds of the day-to-day like definitely Connie had to do and and also Mary up until the point that she brought the staff on. So it's a different role now than it was then and is more amenable to me uh, doing it. Now, that being said, I I, I am still, still... going to be sacrificing plenty of nights and weekends yep. to do the the good work of clock, but I'm happy to do it. I'm excited to do it and all of that. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was, to be perfectly honest with you, I was a little, I was unsure whether a middle-aged white guy should be leading yep. clock, you know? Yep. I could see that from some of the, you know, some of the communications you sent out, and that was a question mark swirling around in your mind. So, yeah, and yeah. your thoughts around that, and the feedback that you had, because no doubt you would have had discussions with others about whether you were the right person at the right, right. time. Right, um, and I mean, I, I believe that we have to model the behavior we want to see, and we have to, you know, then diversity matters to us all yep. tremendously. And ultimately, I think Aunt Jason Barnwell talked me off the ledge on that one because shout out to Jason there at Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> he's always the smartest guy in the room. But it, so what he said was, that, you know, diversity. And honoring diversity means that we have to seriously consider people from all races, uh, religions, uh, sexual orientations, what what have you. But that doesn't mean we have to land on one versus the other. You know, if you seriously consider everybody and it turns out that a middle-aged white guy is the right person for the job at this time, then that's okay. And so that that made a lot of sense to me. And, uh, you know, I, I think that for now... I am the right person to be leading the organization, and that doesn't mean I'll be doing it forever, and and someday I would like to see another diverse person in the role. But for now, I'm going to give it everything I got and help not just the members of CLOCK, but the entire industry move forward 
through the platform we have at Clock. And tell me about some of the, the what are the top agenda items for you? What would you like to see in the first you know, 12 or 18 months of your time as president at Clock? So getting more people from other areas of the ecosystem involved in clock yep. really really important to me I, I would like to see some level of leadership it doesn't necessarily mean a board position but a way that we can get people from across the ecosystem weighing in and helping to lead our direction it is really important to me and, um, and does that mean when you talk about ecosystem let's say law firms alternative legal service providers um, perhaps vendors legal technology players is that what you mean by the ecosystem absolutely absolutely yep. people from all across regardless of where currently drawing a paycheck if you have uh, an interest in moving our industry forward uh, you know we want to hear from you and yep. we want you to to play a part in this movement it's not you know a owned by a small group of people this is yep. a movement that is in a massive community of thousands of people yeah and i want to hear from everybody on on that you know i don't want it to just be about the in-house professionals so that's one thing we need to and and you've probably read this in some of the things i've published lately but we need to incorporate more matters of the heart in what we're doing. So, you know, we've been heavily focused on what I call matter of the mind. So, you know, business intelligence yep. and finance, financial management and, uh, you know, all these things that are really important to our job and will remain really important to our job, but incorporating more of the matters of the heart in there. So some examples, equity, I, I, representation, inclusion, yep. justice, yep. Yep. you know, those things are important and they are inseparably intertwined actually from the matters of the mind. If you yeah. think about it, let me, I'll just give you one example that you know, I like to give, which is if you are managing a project for a customer in your legal department, a somebody in your legal department that has a problem you're trying to solve, in order to truly help them, you have to understand the problem from their perspective. And not just by listening, but actually feeling their pain. And in order to do that, you have to have empathy. Empathy is a skill that can be built like a muscle. And it's so critical to the job we're doing. So the matter of the heart there, empathy, cannot be separated from the matter of the mind, which is project management. They're both important. And I want to start making that more clear in the things that we're doing and in helping our members and our member organizations get to the next level. I have to say, I, lo I love the way you've described that combination, being able to make sure that you're ticking both of those boxes, the matters of the mind and the matters of the heart, because that that's where if you can you win their minds and hearts, then that's when you're going to be able to deliver, I think you know, real results because people are going to be passionate and really understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so I've, that's that's a fantastic cocktail. You get both of those ingredients, I think that's when you can move the needle. 
completely agree. Yeah. And, that, you know, there are other examples. I mean, you know, access to justice, yeah. uh, you know, is somewhere something we can potentially make progress with the, the diversity pipeline coming into our industry. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of these things we've been as an organization clock have been so focused on standing up and, and getting, you know, people interested in legal ops. Yep. But we haven't yet delved into these other things that I think are part of what I'm calling clock 3.0. Yep. So. Yep. Any other particular priority will stand out over the course that you're hoping to nail down over the course of the next 18 months or so? Well, there, there's the really interesting, you know, new technologies. We're starting to finally see um, CLM turn a corner in, in the use of AI and other yep. technologies as well. Um, I'm sure you're flirting with it at Pursuit. Yep. You know, yep. uh, there's there's a lot of really cool things coming down the pipeline. And, uh, you know, we're obviously going to stay on top of all of that and, and help our members leverage it best they can for their organizations. Fantastic. Next, Mike, I've got my myth buster question. Is there any myth out there that you'd like to bust? in relation to what is kind of generally accepted as, let's say, good practice or a priority around legal ops, but doesn't really have any substance? Anything anything that comes to mind? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> well, well, here's the myth that, that yep. actually that I want to dispel right off the bat, and that yep. is that your legal ops function has to incorporate all of the different areas that we've identified as potentially being part of a legal operations program. So right. yep. uh, we have the clock core 12, of course, and you know, there's a lot to that. And yeah. if you look at it and you're just starting out or you're just starting a legal operations program, that can make things look really overwhelming. Yeah. You're like, oh my, do I have to tackle all of that? Yep. And the answer is no. You know, I, I want to make it clear to everybody that what you should be tackling is what your GC says is the priority yep. for yep. your organization and bite it off bit by bit and set a strategic plan and don't try to conquer the world in one day when it comes to that. Because I think a lot of people look at, you know, all the various components of a legal operations program and think, oh, there's no way I can do all that. I'm just going to, you know, do things as we've always been doing them. Yep. Whereas uh, you can make progress in certain parts of it over time and not try to tackle everything all at once and be very successful doing it that way. Yeah. So it, it, it can be a bit overwhelming, can't it? And the, you feel the natural need to try and boil the ocean. But right. I think what you're saying is, you know, pick some easy wins, just make it you know, take that first step, get some runs on the board. That's actually it. Um, that, 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 that's a kind of an English term, get runs on the board. But take those early steps and actually just get some wins. And I think it's like any path that looks daunting at the beginning. If you just take the first step forward and the next step and you, you know, pick off perhaps some of the easier things or the lower hanging fruit or whatever is identified as a priority, then you build a little bit of momentum, a bit of confidence, and then you can take the next bite. Is that pretty consistent with what you'd suggest? Yeah, I think it makes sense. And yeah. you've got to get those quick wins to build yeah. credibility. And, and then people are like, oh, okay, you can get things done and I'll buy into your next crazy idea. Yep, so. that's right. <laughs> um, Mike, looking at the, your career so far, anything that you would do a little bit differently had your time again? 
maybe stayed another year in Tahoe as a ski bum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yep. Uh, uh, um, Touche. Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, 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 nobody usually says, yeah, I stayed too long in Tahoe. <laughs> Does anyone actually say that? Um, no such thing. Fantastic. Yeah. Next question I, I, I like to ask. Often, if, is there anything that you've spent too much time worrying about, which on reflection wasn't time well spent? Everything. So, you know, especially when I was younger in my career, I think I spent too much time looking too far into the future yeah. and worrying about what it would hold yeah. rather than just staying in the present and keeping yeah. my head down and, and conquering what was directly in front of me. I think I wasted time worrying that, that didn't need to be wasted in those years. And, you know, they say that if you live in the past, you're depressed. And if you live in the future, you're anxious. Or, and uh, yep. neither is a good thing. And uh, I was probably living too much in the future for some period of time and not just uh, living in the present like I should have been. So yeah. if I had to do that over, I would probably worry less about pretty much everything. Well said, and I've heard that time and time again, and I say it to myself too. I mean, when you look back and you go, do, do you ever really say all that worrying, yep, that was worthwhile? You never say that. What you do is you can actually, you really do miss out, I think, on being really present, and especially around family and kids in those early years because your career path hasn't been laid out. You've got all the obligations of a kids, a mortgage, and all of that kind of stuff, and you're always worried about what the future's going to hold, and you do actually you do actually miss out if you're not too careful about the opportunity to be as present as you possibly can. Yep. And, and we learn that, or we realize that with wisdom as we get older and yep. we're not always that. Yeah, that's right. That, that's the unfortunate. That does take yeah. the time. That takes too long to work out, but yeah, <laughs> age <laughs> and wisdom right. usually gets you there. What are you most proud of, Mike, personally, professionally? My boys, my yep. my young, the young men I'm raising, and uh, how, how old? I have a 16 year old and a 12 year old. Fantastic. And, um, you know, they've been through a period of time over the past year and a half that was unimaginable and yeah. extremely difficult for younger people who you know want to be out living yep. their young lives. And I'm proud of how they dealt with it. I'm proud of how they're shaping into to fine young men. And, you know, that that's the number one thing in life, right? Yeah, Family. Yeah. That's so, great, to, great to see. And, and they still yeah. love you for now? Uh, I think they love me. They don't always like me, but yeah. you know, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and Mark, one final question. Anything that keeps you up at night now? Anything that you worry about now? Same thing, my yeah, boys. Yeah, yep, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, uh, yeah. work-wise, you know, it's just you know, I'm um, always thinking about the next problem to solve, and yep. uh, so there's a never-ending plethora of problems that need to need to be solved, whether it, it, it's at home or at uh, Intel or at Clock, and so I have plenty to keep me up at night but fortunately i've been sleeping rather well lately excellent that's it and let's take <laughs> let's take our own advice on not worrying too much about the future and making right. sure that we stick as as much as we can to the present mike haven has been that's an right. absolute pleasure speaking to you thanks so much for joining me on the call the pleasure has been mine jim thanks for inviting me fantastic bye-bye take care thank you listeners for tuning into the show for more 
please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.